Good morning, everybody. Good to be here. Um, I already love this church. It's a good church. I don't know if y'all, we're in a lot of churches around the country, and I don't know if you realize how good you've got it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just good. If, if what we just did ain't good, yeah, I don't know what you're going to do in eternity. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know. I don't know. I feel for you. I mean, I don't feel for you. You will be glorified, so just hang on, all right? But it's just good, man. It's good to worship with God's people. I can't even sing good, and I'm just singing, you know, because it's like, because that's the spirit of God in you. I mean, I'm not preaching on this. I just, I got to rant for one second, but I mean, like, he inhabits the praise of his people in that, that when we join, that when we sing together, it's important, I think, that we understand we're not like when the first chord is hit, we're not starting the worship service. We are engaging in an event that has been raging for the ages, whereby angels who are sinless, sinless, but do not have the courage or no, 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 do not have the, the audacity in and of themselves, to approach the throne of grace without covering their face and their feet. But they have the courage and the understanding of God's grace that they can't move away from that throne. So they just hover there and say, holy, holy, holy. And they sing and they praise and they, man, and we're joining in on that. It's good, man. We're singing about, I shared this, just, this thought just wrecked me in the first service where we sing that he's exalted above every other God and, that, and, and to understand that, I mean, I was in India last, last month with my wife and my oldest daughter, Kilby, who is, gonna, is, is preparing to be a missionary to India. Will, Lord willing, perhaps be serving on the same team as Julie eventually. Kilby's 11, so it's going to be a little while. Um, she wanted to stay. She said, Dad, Daddy, can I stay with the team? I said, first off, that's illegal. You're 11. That's called trafficking. I can't throw you into another country and leave you there. Okay, but second, no, you have to finish middle school first, and then we'll go from there. So, but we're over there, and the first morning, I mean, I've been in these situations before, but it, it never, you're never ready for it. And the first morning, we're laying, it's a slummy area where we were, and the first thing I hear at five that morning, you're, you know, I'm jet lagged, so it's five in the morning there, but it's like, you know, time to get lunch for me or whatever, and I'm, so I'm in this weird restless sleep, and I hear in this semi-comatose state the, the Muslim call to prayer being echoed over the city well the city's not completely muslim it's one of those weird pantheistic societies where you've got islam and hinduism kind of vying for islam is raging and you know and and, and kind of gaining steam and then there's there's there are a lot of buddhism there so i hear you know boom here goes the the muslim call to prayer so we hit the floor we start praying that morning just just praying it's it's so it's so invigorating to your prayer life to pray at the same time that they are crying out to those demons. And to realize, you know, to have that Elijah on the, you know, going against the prophets of Baal kind of thing. This is so intense. And then about an hour later, the bells began to ring in the Hindu temple because they, before they burn their incense and make their offerings, they have to wake their gods up. And I thought, I just laid in my bed going, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord never slumbers or sleeps. And I thought, my God is not dead. He's alive. My God is not even taking a nap. He's not sleeping. He doesn't slumber. And your God needs to be awakened. But maybe your God can't be awakened because my God has silenced him. It's just like, man. It's just. So what I do, um, so seeing that was awesome. But what we do, Zach is my brother-in-law, not my wife, and, uh, <laughs> and Tucker is my son and Zach's nephew. So, um, <laughs> so funny. I mean, it wasn't funny. It was not funny at all, but, um, but uh, I was like, I don't, man, I got to speak out here. I, gotta, I, gotta, I can't be silenced. But, um, but so we, we run, okay, um, we run a discipleship ministry in the mountains, North Carolina. A lot of people from, I think, from this area have probably traveled in our area. We're right, right outside of the Smokies, just west of, we're an hour and a half west of Asheville, about 30 miles west of, the, of Cherokee. So most people know where that area is, between Cherokee and Murphy. And so we do whitewater rafting, caving, uh, high adventure activities, uh, rock climbing, rappelling, 
we got paintball fields and skate parks and we do mountain biking trips and it's just fun. We, we just put in a water slide. That's pretty awesome. Um, it's snowing up there right now, so we haven't tried it out. Um, we're in the process of finishing that up. And so um, we use that platform kind of a threefold focus. And that is first to, to reach students who don't know the gospel with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then our, our, our really our strongest focus and, and, and kind of niche and emphasis in ministry is partnership with, with churches and student ministries to then we, we seek to disciple students in kind of a pressure cooker environment. We get them for about five days in the summer for their summer camp. And then during the school year, we get them for weekends. There are a group of students there right now in morning worship, I guess, right now at our facility. One of our staff speakers is speaking to them there. Um, and so we do discipleship events and weekends, and so in the summer we do camps. And the goal is to disciple, equip, come alongside of the church and give a jolt to what is already hopefully going on um, at the, in the local church. And then third, the third fold or third tier of the ministry then is to then, um, we, in our week of camp drives in this direction, to reach, to take this generation. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I always say this, this generation, So now, but it's still this generation now. Um, and to reach, there's 7 billion people almost on the planet. People were freaking out when we hit 5 billion 20 years ago, and now we're at 7. And so there's, you know, 2.5, 3 billion. You guys know, you're a missional church. I know, I mean, Mike's heart blessed me so much last night, just the, the th and, and talking to folks today who are going to go do something about the 2.5 billion unreached, the, the 1,800 unengaged people groups. And so we challenge students with that. We say, you're a believer, you're a disciple, you've got a job to do. There's, we, we, I think it's Piper said, go, send, or disobey. So what do you, where do you fit into this? You're 18, you're 14, you got you know, maybe a five-decade run at this life, so what do you go do with those five decades? Make a difference, make an impact for the gospel. So that's what we do. Out of that, God has opened up a lot of doors for us to have amazing opportunity for ministry to families, uh, parents, fathers in particular, dads, the, the weak link right now, I believe. And in, in, if there's a weak link in the church, I believe it's in the area of biblical headship in the home. Fathers, I mean, we, I talk to thousands of students every year. We see about 7,000 come through our, our facility. We're on the road constantly. And this is the, the area of deficiency in the church that, that the Lord is now opening doors for us to be able to go and, and, and speak at men's events and travel uh, and, and do that. So that's what we do. And it's an honor to be here. And I have the highest regard for your pastor, and uh, he is my brother and my friend, and I love him, and it's so cool how the, the unity of the Holy Spirit works, and, and witness is born between two, two believers, and, and uh, so it, I, I'm honored to be able to stand here. This is, this is sacred, the Word of God and the, and the exposition, which I appreciate the disclaimer, because this morning we're really just kind of going to give a charge. We're not going to tear apart a, a passage of Scripture, um, but, but the handling of the Word of God is something that, that is, uh, is an awesome responsibility, fearful. And so I'm honored to stand here this morning in his stead um, with his blessing and, and share some thoughts with you guys. So with that, I'd like to pray, and then we'll go to the Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would take your word this morning, drive it deep into our hearts, our minds. I pray that we would be mastered by the authority of your word, that our lives would be centered around the centrality of the gospel and, and, and of Jesus Christ in our lives. And that we as men particularly, Lord, as this morning we really look at what your word says in principle and in application about being godly men. I pray that we would be faithful to, to respond to that in our own hearts. Please bless this time. Please speak. Holy Spirit, we beg you for your favor right now and that you would minister our hearts. In your name, Jesus, amen. So we started from Philippians 1, 27, and, and we started for this reason. Um, and I didn't share this in the first service, but just, just throw this at you. My dad, I grew up as, as a PK. My dad started strong, but he didn't finish strong. He started strong, and he didn't finish strong. We're in the process of making a, 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 a kind of a video right now that we will use in promoting men's conferences that kind of centers around my dad's life. Started uh, strong and pastored faithfully, um, but he fell into sexual sin ultimately and and one of the some and, and eventually he came back to faith he for about 10 years he was he was he walked away from the lord the lord restored our relationship and restored a lot of family relationships and, and my dad passed at age 55 i think god just took him once there was some restoration my dad could not deal with the guilt 
uh, and, and I think God just took him. There was, it was an autopsy done. They couldn't figure out why he died. And, and, and the, about six weeks before he died, we had a conversation where I'm, I, I'm saying to my dad, tell me how I don't end up where you ended up. Now, that's a hard conversation in love to have with your father. And this was after we had reconciled. There was reconciliation. And I said, how do I not wreck the ship? How do I not sink this thing? Because God is growing our ministry and he's doing, there's, there's 25 year-round staff in the ministry. We're supporting in partnership with the IMB, people, you know, in different places in the world. And, and how do I do this and not wreck my life and my family's life? And he said, he said, you will only finish strong. This, you can learn a lot from failure, oftentimes more than you learn from success. And he said, you will only finish strong if you understand that your highest calling is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Your highest calling, men, is not to be the provider of groceries for your family. Your highest calling is not to be uh, a good lover as much as, you know, those things are important. Your highest calling is not to climb the corporate ladder or to be the best at what you do. Your highest calling is not even to ministry out externally. It's not even our highest call. My highest calling is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And every, every other calling flows from that. And so when Paul says that we're to live a manner of life that is worthy, to walk in a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel, what I want to do is finish stronger than I started. That's the goal of every man in Christ. That should be the goal of every man. And that is what the work of sanctification is. It is that process whereby God moves us towards the image of Christ where when we're ultimately glorified, we're made like Christ eternally. That's why Jesus prays for us in John 17. And he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That we would be rooted in the word of God, tethered to the scripture in our lives, and that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. So Paul, in saying that, that we would, or challenging us that we would walk in a manner of life worthy of the gospel, has laid down a huge challenge. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the work of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of redemption and that process of him conforming us into his image. And so with that, I want to be faithful to the gospel. So what I want to do this morning is walk just, we're going to, I want to charge you men. Now ladies, don't stand and gouge them in the ribs the whole service, Okay. But this is a challenge to the men. And I want to say this. I didn't say this in the last service. If you're, if you're a mom or a wife and you're here and your husband's not here and he hasn't been here and he doesn't plan on being here, I would say to you, Jesus Christ is your husband and he is father to the fatherless. And you hold fast to the truth and the reality of the gospel. And Christ will sustain you. Christ will sustain you. But if you're here and you're... A man this morning, I want to just look at some biblical principles that we need to understand if we're going to be faithful in reflecting both the image and nature of Christ as fathers and husbands. Um, so I think we have to begin um, in Genesis chapter 2, where, and I, I had the privilege of listening through the series the, that's gone on the last three weeks. I didn't get to hear any of the sessions from this past weekend, but I did get to hear the last three Sundays, uh, the sessions. Um, from there. And so we're going to try to tie some, some of these principles into where you've already been, okay? And just end this thing with some practical application. So in Genesis 2, here's what we have. We have God, and this is what God does in Scripture, okay? Throughout the Word of God, what we see God do is we see, both in Old Testament and New, we see, we see the, that, that the function of the believer works in this way. We see God working and then God working through us. And then us responding to that and shouldering the responsibility that's got, that God's given us. So we see that throughout Scripture. So what, what, you know, to, to get a little bit seminarian maybe on you, we see, uh, first off, indicatives in, throughout Scripture. You, go to, a, you go, go to a passage of Scripture like Romans 6 where, where we're commanded, in Romans 6 and 7, where we're called to, like, you know, to make war on sin in Romans 8 and to, to be obedient and respond to Christ. But what we see first is God doing action. So throughout, throughout Scripture, God first acts. God first moves. We see it from creation forward. And Paul references it in Colossians 1 when he talks about Christ creating all things and then holding all things together. So God is doing and working and moving 
That's an indicative, okay? And next we see the imperatives. That's where our responsibility comes into play. How we respond to Christ, how we respond to the commands of Scripture, how we're faithful and obedient to what God's called us to do. And as men, we have responsibility to respond to who God is and to respond to who Christ is because in, in our lives we have been created in the image of God and in our lives we have been called to conformed conform to the image of Christ. So it is the indicative of God being God and doing what God does. And then us, it is imperative in us that we are responding to that and acting in a Christ-like way. So my responsibility is great because in that, what I have to do is both reflect and model Christ and reflect and model God the Father. This doesn't mean that, and, and I thought the, the, the uh, pastor did a, an amazing job a couple weeks ago looking at the distinctives and the distinctions even within the created order of both man and woman being created in God's image. But I don't know if you realize this, but men and women are distinctly different, and that is by God's design. It's by God's design. I got a, I got a son and two daughters. We are on different planets dealing with them babies. I mean, and I got, I got five sisters. My mama raised eight babies. And there's three boys and five girls. And I'm telling you, we are on, Zach's married to one of my sisters. And me and her ain't the same in any way. We got the same nose, maybe. Which is weird because she's adopted. But anyway. <laughs> but the reality is there, there, there are biblical distinctions that we don't need to be ashamed of. And that we need to embrace and submit to. We need to do that. And in fact, I, I was reminded of this a couple months ago after football practice when I was hanging out talking to another dad and my son comes over and he's bloody and another kid's bloody. And there's blood all over both their, you know, their pads are bloody, their pants, they're bleeding. One kid's gushing from his nose and they got their arms around each other. And I said, what is going on guys? And he said, oh, and the other kid says, me and Tucker, that's my son Tuck. And he said, me and Tucker, we were wrestling and we were, we were playing. And then I kicked Tucker in the head and then, and then I kicked Tucker in the ribs and he punched me in the nose. Can Tucker spend the night with me? Now, my daughters, they're not really like that. They function differently, okay? They function differently. So understanding that there are distinctives and distinctions between the roles that God would have us play in marriage and relationship and community and family, we need to understand that because we live in a society and a culture that has tried to blur those lines, tried to blur those lines. So to do that, what I want to do is look at, at the way God instituted biblical manhood. If Christ... The Bible teaches us in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 is the second Adam. He has redeemed and restored what Adam failed to do or what, where Adam fell. And so if we go back to the first Adam prior to the fall, prior to the first sin entering the world, what we find is God laying out for Adam a platform or a, a list of commands, a list of instructions that Adam is then to respond to and God then places responsibility on Adam. Replaces responsibility on Adam. He tells Adam in Genesis 2 that he's to work and keep the garden. Well, this is in, in reflection of what he's already said in Genesis 1 when he said that man is to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Then he says, to Adam, I'm going to give you this area. Did God need Adam to keep the, this garden? Of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. I remember one time last year, my son and I were, 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 were doing some remodeling, and I had to, I had to nail some siding up, and, and I had Tuck nail it up. I could have done it in about 20 minutes. It took us about three hours. Did I need him to do that? No. I put that responsibility on him. You took part in building this structure. Good job. Good job. Which is what, what we need to do is place responsibility on our sons and on our daughters. And so God places responsibility on Adam, not because God needs help keeping in garden the garden. I'm trying not to talk with this. I'm trying to polish my accent for you guys. Um, Garden to garden. Did y'all get that? Guarding the garden. Okay? So God doesn't need Adam to do that, but he, he puts him in charge to work and keep it. So in that charge, Adam is to work, and in working, he's to provide. God is obviously the ultimate provider, but in his vocation, his job, his day-to-day -day responsibility, Adam is to work. If you work and put groceries in the refrigerator, you're doing the bare minimum, we might could stretch it and say that you're a decent father a decent husband. But then he says, I want you to work and keep the garden and keep the garden. And so in keeping the garden, he's saying, I want you to protect and defend and guard that which I've entrusted to you. It's actually a pretty aggressive term. And so if we work 
to provide groceries were decent. If we work to provide groceries and then we provide a safe home and a place to live and little league opportunities and family vacations and, and, and movie nights and game nights and we really invest socially and relationally in our kids, then maybe we're a good dad and a good husband. But if we're going to be faithful, biblical, God-honoring dads and husbands, then we've got to do this God's way. Because, ladies, your husband cannot be expected to be or do anything more than the Word of God, by the authority of God, expects and commands him to do and be. But he shouldn't be any less. That's, that's, let me say it again. Don't expect your husband to be anything that God has not called him and instructed him to be. But men, don't expect to be anything less. We find our identity in the instruction of Scripture. God has laid out for us our responsibility, our identity, our calling. We're to work. We're built for work. We're built for work. Somebody asked me the other day, what are you really good at? I was like, you know, I can lift heavy mess. I, you know, I don't, I, I can, I'm good with a shovel for hours. I've, I've got stamina. Like, yeah, this is, I mean, I don't really enjoy this, but this is obviously what I was built for. <laughs> God built us that way to work and labor, to build, whether it's in, in the area of manual labor or to be creative in the arts or in, in the corporate world and, and, and to, to build societies and to build corporations and to grow things. God geared us that way to be cultivators, to be farmers, to be warriors, to be defenders. And there's not a man in here that would not fight to guard his home and his wife from an intruder from the outside. You know, somebody kicks my front door in at three in the morning, I'm not going to go, ah, little, you get this one. That's my wife, little. That's what we call it. Yeah. I think somebody just kicked the front door in. I got to get up in like three hours. Could you go take care of this? Don't do that. I mean, that's crazy. But what we see a lot of in our area of ministry is that there are so many husbands and dads who are doing that exact thing, proverbially, in the area of their spirituality and their pastoral care of their family. They're not working and keeping the spiritual home. They're doing the bare minimum, which is clothes and food and vacation and the American dream. So God says, work it and keep it. And the way that he then instructs him to do this is he gives him the word of God. He gives him the word of God. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. But in the day that you eat, it, you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he says this. Here's the word of the Lord. Boom. Now here's why this is so important. Because in the next chapter, in chapter 3, when Eve is confronted by the serpent, if you recall, she tries to quote the word of God to the serpent. She seems to repeat what Adam has been instructed by God in Genesis 2. The problem is she alters those words, doesn't she? She alters those words. Why is that? Is that on Eve? No, here's what I think we need to consider. That God didn't speak those truths to Eve. That doesn't mean, ladies, that you don't get to study the Word of God, but it means that God put the responsibility of pastoral headship on Adam. And somewhere there seems to be a breakdown in the family. That's why Adam was held responsible to some degree. That's why we read later in Scripture that Eve was deceived, but Adam, he had the Word of God. He knew better. Because he didn't instruct his family in the Scripture, in the Word of God, in the instruction of the Lord. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Like Moses commands the people in Deuteronomy 6 to teach them the word of God, but then walk in the word of God, lay down at night in the word of God, rise up in the morning in the word of God, read the scriptures as a family, pray as a family, worship as a family. I don't know what happened, but it seems that Adam didn't do that. So God tells, tells him to work it and keep it, but then he, he fails to carry out the ultimate responsibility of handling the role and task of under-shepherd and pastor to his family. So in, 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 in this charge from Paul in Philippians 1, what we're seeing is if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, we walk not in the manner of Adam's failure, but in the manner of Jesus in his redemption, in redeeming that which Adam tarnished and broke. 
so that we are not conformed to the failure of Adam, though we're born into sin as his descendants, but we are conformed to the redemptive nature and image of Jesus as husbands and fathers. So that in us, our kids might see a reflection of God the Father as Father, and that in us, our kids and wives might see a reflection of Jesus Christ, God the Son, the groom, the bridegroom of the church. What an, what an amazing thing if my daughters would grow up and say, no, I want to marry somebody like my daddy. I want to be with somebody like my daddy. I want my mother's life for the next 50 years. Your daughter, I mean, can your daughter say that? I want exactly what my mother has. That your son would say, I want to be that man. Because it, listen, is it not true? It is woven intricately in the fabric of a young man to want to be his father. I want to be that man. I want to be him. What's that, that's scary. What's that look like? Think some biblical principles. Here we go. Charge. We're just going to charge point by point. We're just going to biblically, what I believe, is redeemed and restored in Christ from Adam's fall. Number one, we need to understand when it comes to biblical masculinity and manhood. I am not the source of masculinity or manhood. Men, you're not the source of masculinity or manhood. In your home, you're not the source of masculinity or manhood. For my son, I'm not the source of masculinity. Christ is. God the Father is. Masculinity flows from the Trinitarian existence of God. It's definitively God-like. Okay? It's definitively God-like. And so in that... I still have responsibility. I am the carrier of godlike masculinity and manhood in my home. I'm not the source, but I'm the carrier. So that I represent God to my family, my wife, and my marriage, and even to those around us that would observe that. To define masculinity, I would, uh, second, second thought, to define masculinity in the biblical sense. So go uh, from a quote that I read from a, a book by a man named Doug Wilson that is uh, called Father Hunger, in which he defines masculinity in this way. I love this definition. It's just so good. He says this, Masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. This could be, listen, this can be so theologically grandiose, but it can be so, so day-to-day seemingly minuscule. From, from, from the fact of moving our self-comfort out of the way enough to serve our wives, man. Sir, just to serve. Just to serve. And to serve silently. I felt like such a heel the other night when my wife was gone. She, was, she got called away to, to counsel a, a lady who is in a horrible situation in her marriage. So me and, me and my son and my girls were there, and it's like... Let's clean up. Let's clean up. We wash the dishes. We clean up. I mean, we knocked it out, which, you know, in a guy kind of way. It's not the same. I know. It's not the same, but it was, it, it was guy clean. It was guy clean. It looked good. And, and so she comes home, and I ruined it by saying, did you see the kitchen? Why would I have to go there? Because at that moment, it stopped being a sacrificial assumption of responsibility, and it became a, a, a thing of entitlement a thing of approval. It became a, became a thing of performance towards my wife. So it can even be in the minuscule. She need to serve like Jesus served. Just like Jesus served. Think about that. He said, son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. So it's the glad assumption of responsibility. And that is something that we learn by which we learn masculinity. So a man who takes on this responsibility is in essence learning biblical masculinity. As I assume responsibility, I learn biblical masculinity. For some of us at age 40 or 50 or 60 or 80, it may mean a lot of unlearning has to happen because we've embraced one brand of masculinity. Where I come from, there is a definitive brand of masculinity. I don't want to conform to that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, there are so many different cultural definitions of what masculinity is. And as I learn biblical masculinity, I do so by submitting and surrendering to that responsibility which God has given me, which is to work and keep and instruct through the scriptures. And then in essence, that's how a boy, a young man will learn masculinity by having that responsibility placed on him. One of the sweetest moments in our lives are when in family devotions, I ask my nine-year-old son to lead family worship. I need you to prepare. Maybe God won't call him to preach, but God willing, he'll call him to be a husband and a father. 
So he's a pastor, a shepherd in that sense, in the home. Not in the sense of standing here on Sunday mornings, leading this local body of believers in the work of the gospel. But the principles of shepherding must be taught to our young men. But in order to be taught, they need to be fleshed out in our lives. So it's the glad assumption of responsibility. And when we are under that load and taking on that responsibility that God has placed on us, then we're learning what masculinity is like in the biblical sense. Third thing, to make excuses is to run away from masculinity. To make excuses is to run away from masculinity. Don't make excuses for me, for my family, for my... We'll make excuses. You look at Adam later in this text i think the second week y'all were in genesis 3 and you look at what he does he makes an excuse and he doesn't just make an excuse he hangs it on his wife i'm so i i, I get so mad and i'm i don't know i'm still just so immature in my faith and my and my lack of understanding of scripture that i don't know how mad i can get it at him over blaming his wife because i'm going this doesn't seem what's going on, but we need to understand that in our in our fallen condition, in our fleshly state, this is exactly where we'll go. We'll go to self-gratifying behavior, which in essence will make excuses for our shortcomings and failures. It's critical. So then, the fourth thing is this: in that we must not let culture determine for us what masculinity is. Scripture has laid that out for us. God has made that clear to us. Masculinity and biblical manhood and our responsibility have already been laid out very clearly for us in Scripture. We should not cut ourselves off from culture. We should, I, would, I, would, I would think of it this way. We should not be a subculture within a culture whereby we look like the world, act like the world, think like the world, conform to the world. But we should not be a counterculture in a legalistic way that we stand over against the world. Listen, Jesus says in John 15, the world's already going to hate you because they hate me. On your most culturally relevant day, you're going to be hated by the world. The gospel does that. The pastor put it so good last night. We were talking, or maybe it was this morning. He said, I don't want there to be any stumbling blocks in front of the cross because Scripture says the cross itself is a stumbling block. So I don't want to set myself over against culture in a way that my legalism causes those people around me to stumble, namely my wife and my kids. But I, want to, I don't want to be so shaped by culture that they see no distinction of the gospel in my life. I want to be defined by the gospel. Which brings me to the last two thoughts. Don't get excited. They're the longest two thoughts. Seriously, I'll be out on time. And it's this. As we go into these last two thoughts... These, these, these two charges then, two charges that I think Scripture has laid out for us. You need to understand this. If we're going to carry out these two major responsibilities, we need to under this, understand this one thing, is that biblical masculinity is, has been described by one writer, and I don't remember where I read this or heard this, maybe the same guy, Doug Wilson, but if you picture a concrete foundation, and that being in Christ... That is biblical masculinity that is rooted at its core on the foundation of the gospel, on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but that the framework that sits on that foundation is the tenderness of the gospel, that we would be like a velvet-covered brick, that in my life, my wife and my kids would see a resolve and a courage and a firmness that is uncompromising in my pursuit of holiness but that it would be wrapped in the velvet of the love and servitude of Jesus Christ. That their needs, their desires, their spiritual needs would be elevated above even my own day-to-day -day comfort. And I'd be consumed by that. I'd be like Jesus. I'd be like Jesus. Two charges. First one, Word of God calls us as men to personal holiness. One of my favorite old writers, Robert McShane, once said this, and this guy's been dead 100 years, 150 years now. He said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. He's talking about from himself. The greatest need my people have for me is my personal holiness. He's talking in the, in the context of being a pastor. But in the context of the home, being a husband and a father, the greatest need that your family has from you is personal holiness, not ministry busyness, not vocational activity, 
Not material provision. Personal holiness. And, and the beauty of this is, yeah, God's already laid this out for us in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, Be holy as, or like, or in the same manner that I am holy. We're not left without example in Jesus Christ, which so enriches the humanity of Christ. That he was fully God and became fully man. Had a, had a woman, a uh, Pentecostal pastor one time, arguing with me about the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And she says, if he's 100% God and 100% man, doesn't that make him 200%? Well, I'm not smart, but I'm a smart aleck. And that's not the same thing. But I said, it makes you 200% stupid. And I realized I had really lost the, the argument. <laughs> so it's important to understand who Christ is in his holiness as both God and man. So that in the man Christ Jesus, I'm given the ultimate example of what I'm to conform to in the God Christ Jesus. To be holy as he's holy. There's no way I can do this if it doesn't happen out of the overflow of my walk with Jesus Christ. You cannot compartmentalize your son's holiness and your daughter's holiness and your wife's holiness and try to package it all and present it. You have to be holy, act holy, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, walk in those truths, live in those truths, teach those truths, be bold in those truths. In fact, I would even submit, sing over your family. Read scripture over your family so that your life is defined by the word of God and the spirit of God and the gospel, but it's not an accessory to your life where you say, we're going to make Jesus number one. He's God. You don't make him anything. You submit to him. We surrender to him. I don't make Jesus anything. He is life. Paul says, my life is hid in Christ. It disappears in Christ so that my holiness is not compartmentalized and it's not, well, I'm holy on Sunday or I'm holy when I'm reading the Bible or that I am holy as he is holy in his existence, in his essence, that I live in a manner worthy of that which God has called me to live in. And how the overflow, my kids are affected by my, one of the greatest gifts of, and of treasures of my life is teaching my children the scriptures out of the overflow of what God's teaching me through the scriptures. Not that I've mastered the word of God, so now that I've mastered this text, I can now deliver it to my children and my wife and be the master in that sense, but that I've been mastered by this, that I've been ruined by this text, that I've been wrecked by this text. And as the Spirit of God is picking me up from the devastation of being exposed to the gospel and the reading of his word on a daily basis, that the overflow of that, when I speak the oracles of God to my children, that they would be impacted to my wife, that she would be impacted, and that as a result, the radical change that is day-to-day in my life would so overwhelm her that she would run to the foot of the cross, that she would run to the word of God, and she would say, I want whatever it is that changed my hard husband into this man. I want that. He's no longer who he used to be. It didn't happen overnight. He's been conformed. And it's continuing to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Personal holiness. Second and final thing, faithful shepherding. Jesus lays out for us in John 10 what a faithful shepherd is. And he's put me in charge as an under-shepherd over my family so that as I am personally pursuing holiness and righteousness that I am then instructing as a shepherd should instruct. And let me say this, you cannot be a shepherd You cannot be a good shepherd if you don't know your sheep. And there are sons and daughters and wives screaming for nothing more than knowledge. I just want you to know me. I just want to be known by you. Dad, husband, there is no one else that God has put on this earth to do your job. You're it. At work, you get fired, it'll make it. Somehow it'll make it. God's got it. In your family, God's put you there. I'm not saying that, that if something happened to you tomorrow, God forbid, but if something happened to you and you were taken out of this world, I, I pray this all the time. God, if something happens to me, I trust you with my family. More, just as much as if I'm still here. But he's put a responsibility on you. 
to be somebody in that family that he wants you to be. As a shepherd, what shepherds do, man, they know their sheep. And when I say to know the sheep, it doesn't mean you become a, like, like a cultural moron where you try to act like a 15-year-old. I cannot be, listen, style ran out with me when mullets checked out and, and peg leg jeans, you know, about 25 years ago. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, wrong era. But I can't, like, I'm not going to be, a, I'm not, my kids, I'm fine if my kids don't think I dress cool. I'm okay with that. I'm fine if they don't think I'm their buddy every day. I want to be their friend. I want to be that. I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I'm saying the overarching, the authority, the, the, the overriding effect of the relationship to your child is not that you would be their buddy, but that you would be their father to your wife. It is that you would be her husband. Then the other will take care of itself. Then I'll be my son's friend. I'll be my daughter's friend. I'll be my daughter's date. This is... To, to understand our responsibility as shepherds, under shepherds in our home, to be faithful and courageous. That my son and I would spend time together and I would teach him biblical manhood. And then my daughters would go on dates. Man, I went on a date with my six-year-old right before we left a couple days ago. We're driving back from the, we went to the coffee shop. I mean, that's not a dude place. It's not a guy place. It's like a coffee shop. We had a little little bakery with like little truffles and mess and everybody in there is, you know, I just felt out of place. But that's where she wants to go. So we're there. We're there. Having this date. I'm having a blast. We're driving around afterwards and I'm singing to her, making songs up. And I sing over her. I love that verse in Zephaniah 3 where it says that God rejoices over his people. This idea of singing over his people and rejoicing over his people. And I sing over my daughter. Listen, guys, is that masculine? It is emphatically masculine to sing over your daughter, to honor your wife, to serve your family. Driving around. I'm saying, I can't even sing. I'm making the song up. I'm singing songs about my daughter. She's loving it. Sing some more, Daddy. And that turned into a time of worship where we were singing songs of praise to God at the top of our lungs, driving down the road, just singing. I was crying. I was like, this is good. My daughter and me, we're worshiping you right now. She's six. We're worshiping you together through song. Faithful shepherding. Shepherd smells like his sheep because he lives with them and among them. He lays down with them. He doesn't separate from them. He doesn't pawn them off on another shepherd. He doesn't throw a 20 at them and say, take care of yourself. Faithful shepherd is deeply involved. Close with this story. And, and let me preface this story scripturally with this. And, and make this the final point. If you will be the man that God wants you to be, then you can fulfill the responsibility of raising up those who understand that the gospel demands much. But if you live out a gospel that is soft, which is not the gospel at all, in the sense that it doesn't demand much, and you create an air and an attitude of mediocre Christianity in your home, Listen, why in the world does James say that our God is a consuming fire? Because the gospel consumes you, becomes all that you are. And, and as a man of God, if I'm going to faithfully handle the gospel and the word of God in my home, I'm going to have to place hard demands on my kids, and hard demands on my marriage. You've got a great opportunity coming up in March to do this. Great opportunity. Now think of Paul in Acts 15 when John Mark if you remember, was on a missionary journey with a team that Paul was leading. It was Paul and there was Barnabas and John Mark. And there, there, was a, there was a group of guys and they were going on a journey. And John Mark had been unfaithful and apparently very immature in the previous journey. And Paul said, he ain't going. He ain't going. Mm -mm. He's not going with us. And there's a division. There's a rift. And Paul says, I'm not going to compromise the work of the gospel. Because he had such an understanding of the value and the importance of the gospel that he would not compromise the behavioral characteristics of this immature young man because he demanded much. 
We've got a problem when we compromise the integrity of the gospel under the guise of our children's freedom. The gospel frees us in this way. It frees us from the demands and the cultural pressures of this world to conform to what it says we should conform to. And so Paul places this demand on John Mark and he says, no, 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 no. You, you go grow up and then maybe. And we see later, it's awesome. Paul loves him enough to trust the, we got to love our kids enough to trust the gospel in their lives because later in Paul's life at the end of 2 Timothy, just before Paul dies, he says, send me John Mark. He's become profitable to me for ministry. We need to make those hard stands. He does the same thing with Timothy when he says in Acts chapter 16, Timothy's a promising young man. Everybody loves Timothy. Everybody likes Timothy. Everybody wants Timothy on their team. Paul says, Timothy, you can go with me. But here's the deal. Everybody where we're going is Jewish. This is akin to going into a Muslim nation or a strongly Orthodox Jewish culture. And, and, and we need to understand certain aspects of the culture that we need to be sensitive to. And he says, they know that your father is not a Jew. You have to be circumcised. Well, Timothy's maybe 18 years old. You think, what does it matter? Well, it matters because the integrity of the gospel matters. And it requires him to do a very difficult thing, guys. I don't, I'm not dare trying to be facetious or silly or unsacred, but I've witnessed. This is in the Word of God, Acts 16, read it. And I've witnessed circumcision one time on a kid that was a day and a half old. It was brutal, and I can't imagine saying to someone, if you want to go with me, you have to go through this procedure. But he demands much from Timothy. But it's hard to demand a lot from our kids when we've not already surrendered to the demands of the gospel in our own lives and the authority of the word of God in our own lives. We have to be the men that God wants us to be. And that begins with surrender to the authority of Scripture. So when my daughter came to me about, we do a family trip into Honduras every year. We had a great time sharing last night, talking about missions. And one of my, I think one of the greatest tasks that you have as a father is to, to invest and instill, listen to me, instill a missional passion in your kids for the nations. And so we go out of the country, and, and, I, and, and from the earliest when my wife and I were even dating, we were surrendering our kids to the Lord in prayer. And when my oldest daughter, Kilby, who's in middle school, came to me some years ago, I think she was five or six, and she said, Dad, Daddy, I've been, God's called me to India. I said, you know where India is? She said, no, sir. Where'd you hear about India? I don't, God told me. Did your mama say anything? I said, God told me. Uh, yes, ma'am, sorry. So God told you to go to India. Yes, sir. When when's, when's he want you to do this? Uh, I was thinking maybe this summer. Okay, no, we can't do it this summer. You're six. Let's, let's start praying for India. Let's start get active. And so what we did is we started praying for India, and we started writing missionaries there that we knew, and, and eventually we had some team members that ended up there. And so there's Skype appointments and letters being written. And then about three years ago, she says to me while we're in Honduras, or about two years ago, Daddy, I want to go to India. When are you going to take me to India? I said, here's the thing, and this is where we have to not soften the demands of the gospel. And I said, baby, I could, I could raise the money pretty quick and get us to India. You want to go to India? You need to understand the road to obedience to Christ is not paved with gold. It is demanding. It consumes you. It is difficult. It will alter, change radically every aspect of your life. You want to go to India? You buy me and your mom and yourself a plane ticket and we'll go. She was eight at the time. Maybe just turned nine. So she went out in the next 18 months, raised $3,600. I don't even know how she did it. I don't know how she did it. I would be preaching in a church and somebody woke up and hand me $500. That happened. I was like, what's this? I heard that your daughter wants to go to India. She raised it. So we went last month. And we came back and, we, and, and our, her life was we went, just met with friends and people that were there and, and, and a lot of the team that Julie's going to be a part of, meeting with them and doing some strategy stuff. I had, had about two days of meetings, but other than that, it was like amazing race. We had, we had directions to new believers we would go find in these slums and find them. And she would go in and she'd say, my name is Kilby. I'm 11. I would like to share with you the Great Commission. 
you are now a believer. So you have to go make disciples. That's why I came here, because I'm changed by the gospel. And I want to make disciples. So then she comes home. And this is where, and I, and I say this, and I ran out of time this morning, but I want to say this almost as a confession. So she's committed to fast for these people, these new believers in these slums we were in. So every Friday, she fasts. Every Friday. I refuse to be led by an 11-year-old. But I'm okay being pushed by one. But I'm going to stay in front, and I'm going to be the daddy, and I'm going to be the pastor, and I'm going to be the leader because it's God's task for me, and it's his task for you. I'll pray. God, I pray that you would take us to a place of continual brokenness by your gospel for the sake of your gospel, and that we would live a manner of life worthy of your gospel. I pray for men in this church. God, I don't know them, but I feel bound to them by the power of your spirit. I do love this church, Lord. I thank you for the work you're doing and for the last four weeks. And I pray that we would be challenged in love, but God, in authority from your word to be the men that you've called us to be. I pray that we would respond even this morning and surrender of those areas that we're holding on to or those areas we don't know how to hold on to. And that we would honor you as husbands and fathers and that out of this church would flow a legacy of godliness that would be generations deep and that would impact not just this community, but this world. And I pray that we would be day after day conformed to your image, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians by one degree at a time, moving towards your glory, that our children would see that, and that they would know no other standard, but that our lives and our pursuit of holiness would be the standard that they measure everything worldly over against, until they are old enough and clear enough to understand that all we're doing is reflecting who you are. And that by our lives and by our words and by our deeds, we would lead them continually to the foot of the cross. And that they'd see Jesus in us. And that we'd be loving them like you love them. Loving our wives like you love them. And that we would see them as your daughters, Father, and serve them as such. Thank you for the gospel.